slid back when like a child running wild in the outside you got older teen movies, what they mean to us, and their impact on pop culture as a whole. I'm Blythe. I'm Erin. That's just a little song I was working on, a little cover of California in honor of today's podcast, which is all about SoCal teens. Okay, so Blythe and I, in ideating our inaugural season of Smell You Love Us, um, we're like, we have to do California teens. Um a lot of movies take place in California, so it, it was a little hard at first to kind of figure out what was firmly in the California teens camp and what was just like a love story set in California mm-hmm. or a story about vampires set in Santa Cruz, California, or, you know, things like that. Um, and even for this episode, we kind of rejiggered midway through the week what it was going to be. We thought it would be all of California teens. Um... And now we've decided that we're only focusing on Southern California teens. Yeah, and we're going to do a whole other NorCal teens. Yeah. And you, which is good because the vibes of SoCal versus NorCal are so different, and the films that we would cover each are so different that it felt like a really nice way to separate the two into those two categories. Totally. California teens, just in general, are so iconic. Just, I think everyone has like this fantasy about what a California teen is, whether it's from watching the OC or watching The Hills or Laguna Beach uh-huh. or even like 90210. When, exactly. Like anything having to do with, especially Beverly Hills, LA, um, Venice, Santa Monica, like this whole, imagine like growing up in like either a surf culture town or like a celebrity culture town. Just really fascinating, and I think the four movies we're covering today, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Clueless, Slums of Beverly Hills, and Lords of Dogtown are all very specific California subcultures on their own that are really fun to explore from the teen movie perspective. So we are both really excited for today's episode. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. And Blythe and I have also both lived in California at the same time, so bizarrely. Yeah, we'll get into that uh, later in the pod, but yeah. it's, a, it's a really fun uh, part of our friendship that is just another example of why Aaron and I were just meant to be. You know, we the, really were meant to be. Fate, fate brought us together in so many ways. To this podcast episode. You're welcome. All right, let's 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 start it. Let's, uh, Aaron, you want to do Fast Times at Ridgemont? Alrighty. So... Fast Times at Ridgemont High came out in 1982. It was based on Cameron Crowe's 1981 book of the same name. Um, the movie loosely follows siblings Stacy and Brad Hamilton through a year of high school in San Diego. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Cameron Crowe, he did another great teen movie called Almost Famous, and he was a journalist for Rolling Stones, and that was the publication that commissioned this kind of undercover project that he went on to write Fast Times at Ridgemont High. So he was 22. He went undercover in this high school. Yeah, isn't that weird? I had no idea. That's such a cool part of 
aspect of this film. Wow. Um, and the high school was, like, in on it. They were, like, totally cool. They were, like, yeah, go get that authentic teen experience. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Crowe also did Say Anything, which is a oh, yeah. another teen movie that Big I teen movie. love. I have, I used to love it. Now I have some thoughts. Oh, well. But we'll get into Stay that. tuned another for our day. Say Anything pod. So, Brad is played by Judge Reinhold. Uh, the The movie doesn't really have a plot. I'm just going to go out and yeah. say that. It's about an hour and a half of meandering. A pleasant meandering with a few antics, but meandering. Yeah. So, um, Brad has a year-long struggle to kind of match his ego with his part-time employment. He gets fired from a burger joint, uh, All-American Burger, at the beginning of the film. Uh, a little cameo is a young Nicolas Cage is the line cook. That was so funny. At the burger place. And he was credited as Nicolas Coppola in this movie. This is the only movie that he used his real name in. Wow. Yeah. Then he gets dumped by his girlfriend, which cracked me up so much. He gets dumped by his girlfriend, who he's been practicing his breakup speech to her. Yep. And she, like, beats him to the punch. That's great. Uh, then he quits Captain Hook's fish and chips when he realizes how humiliating <laughs> his uniform is. But he quits because he, he just takes his uniform off and throws all of the fish and chips out the window. So Brad also has a crush on Stacy, his sister's friend, slash co-worker Linda. And that is best on display in a pretty creepy, mortifying, and iconic, like, dream sequence. Yeah. It's very famous. Yeah. Probably covered in so many different I Love the 80s machinations. Totally. Um, I've just seen so many celebrities say that was the first time I, like, experienced... Saw boobs? Yes. Yeah. Great boobs. Or, like, my first sexual awakening was seeing baby Kate's boobs in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Phoebe Cates looks great. Oh, yeah. She's also, like, 20 in it, so yeah. everyone looked great at 20. Um, <laughs> Linda knows Stacy from working at a popular Italian restaurant in the mall, which they talk about many times. They're like, you work... Linda's great. She's, like, yes. a hype woman She's to Stacey. so great. I love their friendship. Amazing. So, the mall is a huge kind of character in this movie, and um, the movie was directed, written and directed by Amy Heckerling, who is the writer and director of Coolest, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, also focuses a lot on malls. Yes. So what malls mean in Southern California in these movies is amazing. Uh, and Heckerling chooses to open the film with the Go-Go's We've Got the Beat and focuses on like this total minutia of the mall like so closely on Stacy, um, played by the very young Jennifer Jason Lee. And the other people who work at the mall and just like corn dogs and photo booths and escalators and you're just instantly immersed in like the stale air of this mall. Yeah. So on the job, Stacy meets this guy, Ron Johnson, a stereo <laughs> salesman at one of her tables. They go on kind of a date, not really, um, to the point where Stacy loses her originator on, uh, despite their very obvious age difference. And then never hears from him again. And Linda pumps her up and is like, well, where is this going to go, Stacy? Like, he's a stereo salesman. You deserve better. You work at the best restaurant at the mall. Like, Linda, amazing. Thank so you good. for that. So <laughs> then in school, school starts, Stacy meets Mike, who works across the mall, literally, like, physically across the... What do you call that in a mall where there's, like, the big middle... Yeah. The atrium? The atrium. Yeah. That's... So across the mall yes. atrium. 
Mike works at the movie theater, and he's constantly visited by his friend... No, I'm sorry. Mike works across at the movie theater. He's visited by his friend, Mark. Yes. Which is confusing. Confusing. Mark Damone. They call him Damone. And they call... Mike goes by Rad. Rad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And Damone is a ticket scalper, which cracks me up because scalper's like a dirty word. And he's like, I'm not a ticket scalper. (laughs) So Mike, or Rat, has a huge crush on Stacy, asks her out on a date in what I thought was one of the cutest and most relatable ways, and then he forgets his wallet at home when they go on the date. So Damone has to come and bring his wallet, and then Mike goes home with Stacy, and she's He's too shy to like really make a move, so he goes home mid makeout, and Stacy takes this as rejection, and so she goes out with Damone. They have sex for exactly fifteen seconds in her parents' like pool shed. Yeah, she gets pregnant, and then she needs an abortion. So I know we're just starting this episode, but I just want to take a minute and point out that this movie came out over twenty five years ago. And it features a 16-year-old girl getting a safe, affordable abortion in which her brother shows up to emotionally support her because Damone couldn't man up. So we're recording this podcast on May 19th, and the access to women's health resources and support from communities is being systematically attacked and legislated against and revoked throughout the United States as we speak. So we don't like to get political too often, although I'm sure you can tell where we lean, Um, but this is mortifyingly backwards. And a man encounters more interference in this movie getting a double cheese and sausage pizza delivered to a history class than a woman does in getting a safe legal abortion. It's true, and I'm very glad that Aaron gave us that PSA because it needs to be said. It should be said every day until we can dismantle these supremely fucked up laws. Supremely fucked up. Okay, so kudos to Amy Heckerling for making that happen in 1982. We hope that we can, you consider that when you think about the 80s, how much easier things were in a lot of ways. Um, and in response to Damone not being able to man up, Stacy's friend Linda spray, pan, paint, spray paints prick on his car and a little prick on his locker. And Linda is our hero. We just, yeah, we love she's her. a legend. She's my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. So back to the pizza. <laughs> yes. I want to talk about the iconic Jeff Spicoli. Played by Sean Penn. Uh, He got this role without even auditioning. And he requested that everyone on set call him Spicoli to be method. Oh my god. There's no plot in this movie, especially related to his role. He doesn't do much but smoke weed and dream about surfing and dating models. So it's easy to be method when that's your character. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the film wraps up uh, as the school year wraps up. And Stacy and Mike finally get together. And Spicoli passes a class that's taught by kind of his nemesis, Mr. Hand, um, and then Brad ends up getting a promotion at a mini-mart and is thrilled by it. He is so jazzed. Um, and the film ends with title cards next to each character saying, like, what they got up to, and that was mandated by Universal Studios and inspired by the end of American Graffiti. Amy Heckerling did not want those, oh. and Universal Studios was like, no, no, you got to do what American Graffiti did. Wow. Yeah, so a little bit of trivia. There was a seven-episode TV spinoff of this. I vaguely remember. And Patrick Dempsey played Mike. Yeah. But it didn't do well because there were, like, no boobs or cursing or drugs on primetime television. That makes sense. Yeah. And another fun fact is that Judge Reinhold was asked to play Brad because he lived upstairs from Amy Heckerling. Amazing. Right place, right time. Yeah. It was her first movie, too. They actually wanted um, David Lynch to film 
to do this. Are you serious? Yeah, he passed to do Dune. He was like, I'm busy. Also, not a this David Lynch would movie. be a very different film if David Lynch did it. Can you imagine? I mean, I would be into a like Twin Peaks-esque yeah. teen movie, so maybe that's what it would be like, but wow, that's crazy. Okay, so that brings us into Clueless. Amazing. Which came out in 1995, also written and directed by Amy Heckerling. Heckerling, sorry, Amy Heckerling. I had totally forgotten that she did Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I did too until last night I was watching it and I like sat up and I was like, oh my god! It's incredible. Yeah. So Amy Heckerling was inspired to make kind of a Valley Girl take on Jane Austen's Emma. Uh, Cher and her best friend Dion, named after two iconic singers who now do infomercials, <laughs> are the queen. They're the most popular, beautiful reigning queens at their Beverly Hills High School. Cher lives with her lawyer dad and is occasionally visited by her ex-stepbrother, the immortal Paul Rudd. Um, Literally. Yeah. Ageless and probably immortal. He does look young in this, though. It's not that he doesn't look young. It's that he looks Paul Rudd still looks young. Young. Yeah. Okay. Um, so as Cher's dad says, you divorce wives, not children, which, <laughs> love that, love it. Um, Cher gets a bad grade in her debate class, and it kind of sets off this series of events where she's trying to play matchmaker between two, two teachers, Mr. Hall, the teacher who gave her the bad grade, which is, who's played by Wallace Shawn, and Miss Geist, um, the guidance counselor, but she also teaches a class about, like, being a good person, it seems. Yes, like it's community activism. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, in the hopes that their improved moods will create improved grades, so it works. And then, fresh off the high of doing good for others with her success as a matchmaker, Cher makes over transfer student Ty, played by Brittany Murphy. Um, and then there's a series of escapades ensue in which her next match making kind of backfires. And so, in Cher's words, she's sexually harassed, robbed, and doesn't know the number to the party to call Dion. Dion, I don't know why I just emphasized that wrong. Dion, Dion. Okay. <laughs> so Cher's priorities switch again when she falls for another exchange student, which I thought was when we talk about this isn't my least relatable teen moment, but like you don't get two transfer students in one semester at Beverly Hills High. I will say that after watching Slums of Beverly Hills, which is all about the importance of being in Beverly Hills for the good schools. Yeah. I thought maybe that's what's happening. Okay. They're getting a lot of exchange and transfer students because it's a well-sought-after public high school. Sure, sure. Okay, so Christian appears. Oh, my gosh. He's so cute. So cute. Cher has a major crush on him. He seems into her, but then he doesn't seem to, like, take her advances well. Because he has, quote-unquote, a major thing for Tony Curtis, mm-hmm. which we then realize means that Christian is gay, and he and Cher just share a passion for shopping malls and art galleries and a life of leisure. Uh, so more escapades ensue. This movie's just escapade after escapade, including Dion getting on the freeway, like um, that, we'll talk about that, and then... Um, Ty almost falls off the balcony at a mall, 
strange things, but it works. Clueless works. It's like, it works so well. It's one of the most well-paced movies I've ever seen. So well. So Ty then tells Cher that she's falling for Josh, which Cher does not take well. She tries to kind of talk her out of it. And then Ty is insulted and gives Cher one of the best insults of all teen movies of all time. You're a virgin who can't drive. Such a sick burn. And then Cher says, wow, Ty, that was way harsh. With tears in her eyes. It was way harsh. It was way harsh. Um, Cher flips out, goes to the mall to find solace, just kind of walks from shopping center to shopping center in Beverly Hills, and then realizes that she loves Josh, which is weird. It's still weird. It, yeah. It's never sat right with me, but okay, we'll just go with it. So the movie ends with her and Josh together, but not married because she's only 16 and they live in California, not <laughs> Kentucky. Uh, Mr. Hall and, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Mr. Hall and Miss Geist get married and everyone's happy. Ty starts dating an adorable Breckenmeyer as a skateboarder. It's a, it, it ends just so sweetly. It's great. There were a lot of spinoffs of this, like television show, books. I think there was a sequel that went like straight to DVD. A whole clueless kind of, um, what do you call it? Universe. Yeah. So we got a lot of trivia for this. Um, none. There have been literally books. Like there's a oral history of how Clueless was made. So I'm not going to try and, and get into that. But uh, the studios had a really hard time kind of like going along with this they were like oh teen movies are over like that was a big thing in the 80s with John Hughes and like who's gonna really want to see once it got greenlit by Scott Rudin who is famous because he's produced literally everything um there was a 40-day shoot and then it came out the following summer and it was the number one movie the weekend that it premiered it was totally unexpected triumph of the summer of 1995 and it grossed uh 56 million dollars and it was only projected to make $12 million. Um, yeah, they auditioned a lot of people to play Cher, even though Amy Heckerling had her sights set exclusively on Alicia Silverstone because of uh, Aerosmith's Crazy video. That's amazing that she saw Crazy and was like, knew that Alicia she Silverstone was like, she's my girl. could be Cher. Yeah, so that's how she felt, and they made her cast a few other people um the casting director is this woman Marsha Ross so they saw Sarah Michelle Gellar who was like busy because she was on a soap at the time they saw Tiffany Thiessen who like didn't really have the vibe they saw Carrie Russell who also didn't have the vibe and there was one girl that they really really wanted to get in but they couldn't because of her schedule and that girl was Gwyneth Paltrow which is interesting because Gwyneth Paltrow went on to be in a movie version of Emma. Yeah. Which is also a great movie. It is. And she's great in it. Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow, great actress. Yes. Yeah. I, I will stay, I will co-sign that statement. Sliding doors. Uh, Tell to Miss Ripley. Even that movie Country Strong has a fan following. She is good in it. She is a good actress. She's an annoying person. She is, but she's a good actress. Or I shouldn't say that. The new word of choice is polarizing. No, she's annoying. She's annoying. Okay. She's annoying. Um, so Marsha Ross, the casting director, 
a lot of the good tidbits I found are about her. She tested Paul Rudd, and they really liked Paul Rudd. He read for kind of all of the different characters, and he read for Murray, which is the Donald Faison character. Murray's black, and um, Paul Rudd, it, like, wasn't noted in the character description that, <laughs> that the role was, like, actually cat, like meant for a black man. And so Paul Rudd was like, oh, this is a really weird, like, I've never seen this done before. Like, a white guy who, like, thinks he's black and is trying to, like, assimilate with black culture. So he, apparently he read for it, and they were like, that was good, but, like, you, we're not considering you for the role of Murray. And he was like, why? And they I, were like, because you're white. I would love to know what scene he read. Right? As Murray. And I would love to get my hands on that screen test. Oh, my God. Amazing. Yeah. But that that indicates kind of Paul Rudd's uh, just like go with it attitude. Absolutely, <laughs> that the Paul Rudd confidence. Yeah. Of like, well, this isn't on choice, but you know what? I'm gonna do it. I'm a professional. Yeah. And this is my job, and I'm gonna give it my best and play for humor. And I bet honestly, he was probably a very likable Murray in his audition. I'm sure. Um, it made me think of his role in Wet Hot when he is just, like, extra and, like, trying to be more. I was like, oh, I can see where that came from. Um, but I did want to talk about Marcia Ross for a minute, the casting director, and read off her, uh, filmography. Ooh, okay. So, she did the movie Heartbreakers. So, she did the casting for she all of these She did the casting movies. for, no, she didn't do the casting for, she only did the casting for Clueless. Oh, I see, okay. But her... When you read about, like, all the people that she brought in and, like, how the cast kind of came together, um, she was, like, earlier in her career when she was casting the movie and just knew all of these teens and that, and so, like, was really in the world. And they weren't teens. They were, like, a little bit older. Alicia Silverstone was 17. But, so, this is the, these are the things that she cast. Heartbreakers, Clueless, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, 10 Things I Hate About You, Deuce Bigelow, Mel Gigolo, The Princess Diaries. This woman is the reason we have Anne Hathaway. Like, wow. that, isn't that amazing? Um, the Hot Chick, uh, Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen, and Enchanted. Those are a lot of movies I really love. Right. Yeah. So thank you, Marsha. Wow. So the next movie on our list, Slums of Beverly Hills, is a really nice counterpoint to Clueless because Clueless is all about what it's like to grow up extremely wealthy and privileged in Beverly Hills. So wealthy. And Slums of Beverly Hills is the opposite, as its title suggests. Slums of Beverly Hills is a comedy that came out in 1998 and has since become a bit of a cult classic. It was written and directed by Tamara Jenkins and tells the story of 14-year-old Vivian Abramowitz, who is played by the incredible Natasha Lyonne. And is all about Vivian dealing with puberty and poverty and a pretty fucked up family living on the outskirts of Beverly Hills in 1976. Vivian and her two brothers are being raised by their father, Murray, who is played by Alan Arkin, and I think is the heart of this movie. Yeah, we were talking about it um, a bit before we started recording, and I was like, oh, I don't think the movie works without him. I don't think the movie works without him or Natasha Lyonne. They are both so essential yeah. in terms of their comedic timing and their emotional, they are the emotional beats of this I movie, think I it would have been, I think it would have been a different movie if it had, if it had a different teen girl. Like, I think it would have, a lot of the stuff would have landed differently, but I don't think that it would have been a funny movie without Alan Arkin. I think it would have been, like, deeply 
traumatic. Really way too dark. Yeah. 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 The way it is, it's very sardonic and dry and very, very funny. So But if you play any one of these scenes in a different way, it all of a sudden becomes like like a dramatic, terrible, dark movie. Yeah. But Alan Arkin is, you know, he's 65 years old in this movie and, and he's frequently mistaken for the kid's grandfather. And you, you, you just, like, could not put together a bigger bunch of misfits. Just Alan Arkin and his three kids riding around totally. in this busted-up Oldsmobile going from shitty apartment to shitty apartment. What does she call them again? Well, you mean nomads? No, no. She has a name for shitty apartments. Oh. Um, oh, it'll come to me. Sorry. Keep going. Okay. So we learned that their mother, their mother and, and father are divorced, and she lives on the East Coast, but we don't really know much else about her. And you sort of feel for Vivian because she's 14, and she's growing up with just all men, and she doesn't really have a lot of female figures in her life to help her understand. Like, she has to go bra shopping with her dad. It's, like, really embarrassing. So embarrassing. You just feel so bad for her. And... To top it all off, they're super broke. Um, her dad is this unsuccessful Oldsmobile salesman, and he can't really afford to live in Beverly Hills, but he doesn't want to leave the city limits because he values his children's education, and he wants to make sure that they can attend the city's prestigious and very good public schools. So they kind of bounce from cheap apartment to cheap apartment and hotels, and they also rely heavily on Vivian's wealthy uncle, Mickey, who is played by Carl Reiner, and regularly sends them money to help them survive. And later in the film, Mickey's 29-year-old daughter, Rita, played by Marissa Tomei. She's so hot. She's so good in this she movie, She plays too. such a good hot mess. Oh, my gosh. So she ends up running away from a rehab facility <laughs> in Pine Ridge. Which is I like, love they call it a detox yeah, facility, too. Yeah. Um, like, literally runs away, is wearing, like, a hospital gown, yeah. and, like, hitchhikes her way to Beverly Hills, um, and Murray ends up, like, adopting her for a little bit, because Mickey just, like, can't handle her, and Murray says, oh, you know, well, Vivian's, like, they've always gotten along, so she can come live with us, but you're gonna have to send us more money and upgrade our living situation so that Vivian and Rita can have their own room. So Murray and Mickey hatch this plan where they're going to move into a nicer apartment and Murray's basically going to help Rita get into nursing school, which is something he decides would be good for her. And she Well, because just, the bus just pulls up and they're like waiting for a sign and then yeah. like a nursing school pulls up. So really he tasks Vivian with babysitting her adult cousin who is addicted to pills and booze and addicted to sleeping with C-list actors. I was going to say, and men. <laughs> So, yeah, Murray tells Mickey that he's going to get Rita into nursing school and puts Vivian in charge of making sure she gets there. And the two end up bonding, Rita and Vivian end up bonding, because even though Vivian is 15 years younger than Rita, which is so weird on a rewatch, realizing that, they really act more like peers than Rita as being an adult relative. Rita's not a role model. She's, like, a best friend. Mm -hmm. And the two really bond over boys and sex and womanhood, and they even speak in their own language that they invented when they were younger, which is, like, a really endearing part of the That's movie. That's really sweet. That's really sweet. But speaking to the age difference, like, that means that Rita was, like, 22 when they came up with it. 
Yes, I think that we can just know that Rita's got some issues. And she maybe, has, would you say, an arrested development? I sure would, which is a great segue into another cameo in this film. I just came up with that. But, I had to pat myself on yeah, the Yeah, that was very good. <laughs> so in addition to uh, Vivian's older brother, Ben, who is... All you really need to know about Ben is that he's an asshole with musical theater aspirations <laughs> and gets the role of Sky Masterson in his high school's production of Guys and Dolls, which is a really, really funny scene. <laughs> it's a great subplot. <laughs> So, uh, as Aaron mentioned, Jessica Walters of Arrested Development is in this movie, and she plays this woman that Murray starts dating. Uh, He says he's dating her for companionship, but it seems to me that he uh, was hoping to get some more financial security, because she's sort of a wealthy widow, and he... is invited over to her house for dinner and takes all of his kids with him. And it's another really great scene. Uh, with Erin has a, a quote that she wanted to oh, share. Oh, yeah, my favorite from quote. Scene. My favorite quote is they're walking in, they're like in the lobby, all of them. It's like Murray's four, Murray, his three kids, and Rita. Like, why you bring the random cousin with you? Who knows? But they're all walking through the lobby, and Murray's like, okay. Like, she's very excited to meet you guys. This is going to be great. Blah, 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 blah. Try to act decent. Like people. <laughs> and the way, and he delivers it in that signature Alan Arkin. It's just, it's so good. So, Vivian, because she's not dumb, she's like the only, she's like the she's smartest person in this movie, uh, learns that Rita has no desire to attend nursing school and really has no clue what she wants to do with her life. Oh, and also she's pregnant, so Vivian learns that Rita is also pregnant by the C-list actor that she's been sleeping with and kind of has to just put her hands in the air and say, what am I going to do about this? I'm 14 and I'm all of a sudden in charge of not only my two brothers, but also this 29-year-old pill popper. <laughs> yeah. So she kind of just like puts her hands up and is like, I'm just going to try to be a normal teen and like make out with this cute guy from the apartment complex across the street and like... Hope that Rita gets out of nursing school okay. And then she, Rita, unfortunately, does not get out of nursing school okay. Oh, no. <laughs> she tries to call the father of her unborn child. And when he doesn't answer, she goes on a little bit of a binge and ends up back at the apartment complex, uh, basically, like, passed out in a touch-and-go, drug-induced coma, yeah. perhaps. Or in her, her words, I must have eaten something that didn't agree with me. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, Murray tries to cover up Rita's lack of progress at nursing school. Um, there's a scene where he's <laughs> trying to revive her, but he doesn't want to call the paramedics, and eventually they come anyway because yeah. the younger brother found Rita and called the paramedics because he's a smart person, and I'm glad that little kid did that. Yeah, even though they knocked them down the door, that was hilarious. It was, it's such a great scene, and I won't ruin, try to ruin, I'm not going to ruin it for people, but like, in this scene, you have Natasha Lyonne, her, <laughs> wearing her boyfriend, Charlie Manson shirt. both of whom are, they're both wearing Charlie Manson shirts, <laughs> for reasons that you will figure out once you watch the movie. Jessica Walter is in there, because they just got done with a date. Oh, yeah. She's in like her, you know... Lady of Wealth, like business, like Chanel pantsuit, a passed out Marissa Tomei in like a silk robe Uh and a teenage 
a, 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 like a ten year old boy and then a teenage David Crumholtz going, I got the part in Guys and Dolls of Sky Masterson <laughs> is all happening when the paramedics like break down the door. And it is amazing. One of the funniest things I've seen in a long time. So unfortunately, Mickey comes to town and checks up on how everyone's doing, and they end up having the all of the families end up having lunch together, and Mickey kind of gives Murray his piece piece of his mind, and he's a, he's an asshole. He yeah. honestly he's never given his brother money out of charity. It's always been with a an insult or an admonishment of how he chose to live his life. It's he's not generous. He's more of just. He lords it over him. Exactly. So they're having this final like meal together and it comes out that she's pregnant and that she's not going to nursing school and Mickey freaks out and cuts everybody off and then Murray and the kids pack up in their car and take off and will most likely end up at another dumpy Beverly Hills apartment. But it ends with them going to Sizzler and having a nice family meal together which is like very sweet it's just like a weird wonderful movie and like i said it's a nice contrast to some of the shinier parts of beverly hills that we see depicted in movies like clueless and in teen uh, tv shows like 90210 and i want to share like one fun detail i learned while doing research for today's episode and that was that natasha leone had to wear silicon breasts for the role and a lot of this movie centers around her struggles with puberty and especially the fact that she has, like, pretty large breasts and gets a lot of unwanted attention because of it. And at first, Leon, who was 14 when she filmed this movie, was, like, really excited to wear them. And then the director, Tamara Jenkins, was like, I'm glad you're excited to wear them, but I also want you to take them with you once you leave here and just, like, spend a whole day wearing them. And, like, let me know what you think. And she did that and immediately came back and had this, like, disheartened Aww. look on her face and just said to the director, I get it now. Oh, I hate that. I know. But it's also, like, very true to life. And... Tamara Jenkins is a cool director. She really is. It, it was a gr- It's a great... Our final film that we're going to cover today is also set in the 70s in a similarly crappy part of, of southern california mm-hmm. it's not crappy anymore no it's now one of the most expensive places lords of dogtown is a 2005 american semi-biographical drama directed by katherine hardwick and written by stacy peralta the film tells the story of a group of young skateboarders one of whom is the film's writer stacy peralta surfing skating and trying to survive in the venice beach area of la during the 1970s I should note that Stacey Peralta also wrote and directed a documentary about this same subject matter, this group of skaters, of which he was a member, called uh, the Z-Boys. And the documentary is called Dogtown and Z-Boys, and it came out in 2001. And like the dramatic film that we're discussing today, the documentary explores the pioneering Zephyr skateboard team who really evolved, and some people say... um, created the sport of skateboarding as we understand it today. So I de- I've seen both uh, the documentary and Lords of Dogtown, and I think Lords of Dogtown is a better teen movie because it has it really focuses on the teens. And unlike the documentary, 
Lords of Dogtown provides us with a much deeper look into the boys' family lives and their friendships and their romantic relationships and their relationship with this Venice community as a whole. So the movie really centers around three members of the Zephyr Skate team, Jay Adams, played by Emil Hirsch, Tony Alva, played by Victor Rasek, and Stacey Peralta, played by John Robinson. The original team had at least 12 kids on it, including Peggy Oki, who was one of the first female skaters. And all and their members of the team make are tertiary characters. There's like Red Dog and some other, but they're not yeah, central they're like characters. Around. They're just around. So there, there are also some notable tertiary characters, including Sid, who is a rich kid that tries to ingratiate himself into the group of skaters, who's played by Michael Angro. And Skip Enblom, who is the founder of Zephyr Surf Shop and the Z-Boys' skate team. And he acts as, like, their manager and their shitty surrogate father <laughs> and is sort of in control of the team until the boys' careers become too big and they have to move on from Skip's poorly run operation. Skip is notably played by Heath Ledger in a pretty amazing role. With a prosthetic... He has like a fake tooth. Tooth that make like it makes him look a little less attractive, but like you you can only do so much if you're Heath Ledger yeah. to be not Heath Ledger. Yeah, I mean he had to become the Joker to be like not hot yeah. anymore. So and even then, I think there's a large contingent of the internet who would find him quite hot. Oh dear, the internet's oh dear. so weird. Oh dear. <laughs> so there's also a ton of notable actors and skaters. Um, in this movie playing like just random bit parts you'll see Sofia Vergara, America Ferreira, Johnny Knoxville, Mitch Hedberg, Jeremy Renner, Nikki Reed, Tony Hawk, all these cameos made the rewatch extra fun. Well Nikki Reed has a full role. I yes but everyone else. Yeah unfortunately it's just because the movie is about these three guy skaters. She is sort of yeah you know. I, I feel you. So these boys and I'm calling them boys because they're referred to as the Z-Boys, but they really are boys. Like, they're young. They're young, they look young, they're yeah. slight. Yeah. Um, and they're trying, I mean, they've obviously grown up really fast living in this community. I think they're required to take on adult responsibilities really young. Jay is basically, uses skating as a way to pay for his mom's rent because she really doesn't have her shit together and his father's gone and Tony's mom is gone and his dad like works double shifts to help pay for him and his sisters. Like, yeah, it's a very blue collar town. They call so that would probably be an understatement. Yeah. They call this shitty part of Venice and they refer to it lovingly as Dogtown, quote unquote, the ghetto on the ocean. Everyone is like very proud to be from Dogtown. It's sort of yeah, it's blue collar. But it's also, there's just something about living on the ocean in this, like they said, ghetto on the ocean, that they all seem to really pride themselves in being grittier surfers than people that would be from like Huntington Beach, where the surf mm-hmm. is like kind of calm. They like have a serious swell and they really pride themselves on being locals in this skate. Right. They like community. surf into a pier. Yeah. A, a rotting, broken down pier yeah. that eventually is destroyed during, um, in the 70s, which is part of the film too. So the film opens with them like waking up before the sun rises to go surfing. School is out for the summer, and all, all the boys want to do is surf. So they go to this shitty, run-down pier to surf, but 
they have to defer to the older guys that surf in the same area, so they don't actually get to do that much surfing, and there's a particularly long stretch in the summer where they can't surf because there's this drought. So they, they end up just turning their attention to skating instead, sort of by default. And this period of hot weather that is responsible for reducing the ability to surf at the pier will actually end up changing the boys' life and perhaps the sport of skating forever because the official declaration of a drought in the community means that swimming pools cannot be filled with water. And so the Z-Boys all start sneaking into local backyards to skate in these empty pools, which they can, as they put it, ride like a wave because they can get really, it's like a bowl. They can all, as we understand skating today, it's like exactly that's how it originated. I, I mean, it sounds like they are, this drought is perhaps responsible for like what half pipes and everything that yeah. we have today. I mean, it's pretty wild. Necessity is the mother of invention. Absolutely. And I think it's the most fun part of the movie. It's just, like, really cool. It's, it's just, really well done. And yeah. you feel like... Um, I know that I've complained about movies in the past being like, there was too much sports in this. But, like, the way that the... <laughs> the way that the skating scenes are done, like, it's great. And you're totally up in the action and, like, holding your breath when they do crazy stuff and celebrating when they do crazy stuff. And it's... Yeah, it's it's really fun. So eventually they start entering into skating contests and becoming super famous. I mean, skating in general just starts to like really get up off the ground at this point. And they start winning these major contests and they start getting sponsors and they start getting TV offers. And it just like gets spins out of control. They just become more and more famous. And again, they're like 16, 17 year old boys. And they're just all of a sudden rocketed into this celebrity and some of them handle it better than others stacy yes. again perhaps maybe because he wrote the film gets a pretty good edit as like a kid with a pretty good head on his shoulders and you know he signs with a pretty responsible um major skateboarding company jay kind of gets involved with like a pseudo pimp played by johnny knoxville amazing who, like, johnny knoxville is a really good role um, but is clearly not as interested in Jay's long-term career as he is of just making money quickly, as quick as he can. And then, um, oh, sorry, Tony is the one that hooks up with Johnny Knoxville. Jay is probably the most pure of heart in the sense that yeah. he just wants to skate and take care of his mom. This is the Emil Hirsch character. He's a really good character, um, and he... He ends up getting just, like, a producer that his mom's brother knows or something to, like, put him in films and stuff. But he really has no interest in being represented by a skate company or a skate team. And he really he really just wants the Z-Boys to stay together. But Skip is a shitty businessman and really can't afford to do anything, let alone sponsor a skateboarding team. Right. So Jay, Tony, and Stacy, Jay, and Tony all leave Skip, and they just start doing their own thing, and um, that Skip just gets really angry and decides he has to shut down the Zephyr Skate team. He closes the surf shop. He's he also has like his own drug issues. You know, he's got a he's lot. Not of a great he's not a great adult. He's not a great adult. So they have all this fame, and then they're all brought back to Venice when they learn first of all that the pier that they used to surf around is burned down 
and that, that that has a really huge emotional impact on all of them. That's like where they grew up. That's a huge part of their identity. And they also learned that their friend Sid, that I mentioned, the one who's the rich kid who tried to like ingratiate himself with them, has like a pretty serious brain tumor. And he's always been like a really important part of their friend group because he was sort of like the emotional backbone for them. And it was just really sad to have them all get together. But it's probably the best scene in the film. It was so, I was like crying. The film ends with them all at Sid's house and Sid's parents emptied the pool, their swimming pool for him and his friends so that they could all skate in it one last time. And um, you learn that at the end of the movie that Sid died. And like other films that we've discussed today, they have these closing cards that show what happened to everyone. So Tony went on to become a really successful skater and Stacy also became a very successful skater and even started his own skating company that included 14-year-old Tony Hawk as part of its team. So Stacy Peralta gave Tony Hawk his start. Tony Hawk who falls off his bit in the movie is that he does, he's playing an astronaut who can't stand on a skateboard and so to watch Tony Hawk fall on a skateboard was like hearty har Yes, it was cute. It was very cute. And Jay, um, during his sort of tumultuous teen years, ended up joining a gang, and that becomes a pretty big part of the identity. But you learn that he ended, from the closing cards, that he did end up getting out of that at some point, and he just stayed in the same community and um, really just devoted himself to bettering the community that he grew up in, and it says that he, quote-unquote, was the spark that started the flame for the skateboarding I mean, sport, really, like, for everything that we understand skateboarding, he really got a lot of credit in this film for being uh, the one that started it all. Yeah. And you learn at the end of the movie that, you know, Sid died of brain cancer, but his parents kept his pool empty for the rest of the time they owned the house, and it was always referred to as the dog bowl, and people could come still come and skate in it. So just like I'm, like, tearing up talking about I know. It's so, it was such a beautiful ending. It's also one of the only movies, teen movies that we've covered that's based, just like, in real, real reality. You know, a lot of stuff is, like, semi-autobiographical and inspired by someone's upbringing and heavily influenced by, but this, these were, this was a really, um, special display of real teens. Yes, agreed. And it's really cool. I recommend watching both the documentary and the dramatic film because they, you get insight into both of them in a, in a nice way. Um, I think as a teen movie, like I said, Lords of Dogtown is just better. And I think if you have to see one to understand the skate culture thing, you maybe should see the documentary. But if you want to see one that's just a great teen movie, you should see Lords of Dogtown. The I haven't seen the documentary. It's on my list now. It was, I mean, it was award-winning. It was a oh, big yeah. deal. Um, but it, I think there's a reason that Stacy made both the documentary and the dramatic film yeah so interesting how do we feel about these films on a on a rewatch or for me i had only ever seen clueless wow okay mm-hmm. this is fun okay so i let's start with fast and his original high i remember watching this vaguely as like a young like 10 or 11 year old i think again i was like at my grandma's for summer vacation or something and it was just one of the movies that was in the uh, available to us but I watched it once with like an older cousin 
And I just remember being like, oh, this isn't for me. And yeah. sort of like never revisiting it. But then it be- being so ubiquitous in pop culture that I've actually rewatched scenes of it so many times. Totally same. And you were, me- you were saying like the all of the I Love the 80s things that yeah. VH1 did or like MTV would do these. I feel like I was, I mean, everyone's aware of Spicoli. Yes. But I was like very aware of Judge Reinhardt. I was not aware of Jennifer Jason Lee. Because she doesn't look like Jennifer Lason Lee in this. Exactly. Jason Lee. She just looks so young. Worst hair. Her oh, hair is so it's bad. Really bad. It's so dry. Why is it so And like, it's like big brushed out. Yeah. It's like very, very bad styling on that. Um, but yeah, I had never seen this, but I felt like I had the general understanding of what this movie was and what it was about, which was not just teenagers. Like, just if you asked anyone, I feel like, who was a teen in the 80s or 90s, like, oh, what's Fast Times at Ridgemont High about? And they'd just be like, teens. Totally. And I will say, I was, because it's such a pop culture favorite and it's on so many lists of best teen movies, I was going into this rewatch thinking I was going to be blown away, kind of like I was with Footloose. Yeah. And it was a little bit of a letdown. And I don't know if that's because I'm so used to Clueless, Amy Heckerling, mm-hmm. which is a very... Very well paced, very well produced. Obviously, she had a bigger budget for Clueless than she did for Fast Times at Ridgemont High, her first film. That I was a little let down. But that's just because Amy Heckerling outdid herself with Clueless. It's not her fault. Totally. I mean, right. We can't hold her to the Clueless standard, which she made like 15 years into her career. But I think that with Fast Times, like, there was a lot of very California teen stuff that happened. Like, Mm -hmm going out to the beach to have sex was like, mm-hmm. oh, that happened in the OC like every episode. Oh, every episode. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, just parents having pools in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Such a California thing. Um, the malls. I mean, we didn't touch on this with Slums of Beverly Hills, but that movie also opens in a mall. Yes. Um, and so, I think that this movie, when I, you can see little bits of Amy Heckerling's clueless style in this movie but it's not in the performances that she gets from her actors and the thing that's weird about that is Jennifer Jason Lee plays like a bona fide sociopath all the time now you know yeah. what I mean like she's so if she's in something we're like oh we're gonna go see it and she's gonna be nuts and it's gonna be a twisty turny amazing thing or she can be hilarious yes like I love Jennifer Jason Lee, And in this, she's just kind of like oatmeal. I know. And I will say her friendship with Phoebe Cates was my favorite part of the movie. And I think it was the most true to teen life part of the movie. And I will, I, I do appreciate the sort of dazed and confused aspect of this movie. Like you said, it's really just about teen life in a very almost mediocre way like it's almost like this film is almost boring and how pedantic it didn't seem like, like fast times no it felt like, it felt like quite boring yes like times. medium times <laughs> at Richmond High but I and I really did like their friendship even though I will say their interactions even though there was a lot of just the two of them it still did not pass pass the Bechdel test no because everything they talked about were were guys yeah they never had a interaction that was just about their classes or their interests. It's true. So that was like kind of a letdown. But Phoebe Cates really blew me away. Her performance was so good. So good. Her character was so good. What an amazing wing woman. What an amazing friend. 
what an amazing just personality. And I also feel like in high school or in in life, in adolescence, you always kind of have, or I, I had a few different like friends who were a little bit older than me, like a grade older than me or something. And it, people that are a year older than you feel so much wiser mm-hmm. and they feel like, but it they have the kind of critical distance even if it's imagined, even if it's like they're six months older than you because they're great above you, like, to to point things out in your life a way that, like... Let's move on to Clueless, which is such an like an amazing feat of filmmaking. Yeah. I, I want to talk about Spicoli. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I just kind of remembered this. So, did you have a Spicoli in your high school? Just like a straight-up stoner, like, kind of... Um, burnout sort of thing? No, like a, like a, like Spicoli is a good at heart person. Like, he's not mean. He does, there are a lot of, like, un-PC things that he's... We, so I did definitely have a Spicoli in my high school. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to shut him out because he's oh, now not out mine. a very successful person. Yeah. And he's grown up a lot, so I don't want to shade him that way. Not that he's ever going to listen to this. But yes, I had a Spicoli. So I had a Spicoli, and I had completely forgotten about him. And I, me and my friends were obsessed with him. Really? Not in a, like, like, we didn't have crushes on him. We didn't necessarily even want to be his friend. We just thought that he was the most fascinating person. Oh, interesting. And he was. Like, he really was. Because he was a very, very smart person. Mm. And was... I thought high most of the day. Mm-hmm. And so you would kind of get these like breakthroughs where like you'd be sitting in class and he would just say something and you'd be like, what is going on? Wow. Like he was amazing. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot. I don't, I don't want to reveal who he is. And I really hope that my high school friends are listening. Okay. So that brings us into Clueless. Cher Horowitz. Oh, Horowitz. But he's still just. So, such an endearing character. So, I remember this film so well. I, it came out when I was in fourth or fifth grade, and mm-hmm. I couldn't go to the theaters to watch it, like, mm-hmm. my parents weren't going to take me to Clueless, but I really wanted to see it, and so I remember my mom read, like, a New York Times review of it, and she was like, okay, it's based on a Jane Austen novel, like, okay, you can see it, like, it's not going to be that bad. So, we rented it. My mom loved, like, my mom thought it was amazing. She thought it was so funny. I remember my dad was the reason I saw this My movie. dad also really liked this movie. But I remember being so obsessed with it that I had, like, a Clueless-themed, like, fifth-grade birthday party. Oh, my God. Are there photos of that out there? No. Ugh. No. My parents didn't really take pictures. <laughs> but um, I even had, and this is, this both goes to show that I was way too young for this movie because I had a Dion Barbie doll. I was so obsessed with this Aww. film. And she had the cutest purple satin outfit ever so I was like so young that I was still playing with Barbie dolls but I was watching Clueless also Clueless had Barbie dolls wait I have a fun fact for you about those Clueless Barbie dolls I don't know if you know this I I don't know how many of our listeners are as familiar with Billy Busy Phillips and as I am I never read her book um or watched her show but Busy Phillips Got a job, so she went to co- She went to college in LA, and got a job while she was there. That was like a left. She had gotten a job at a toy fair when she was still living in Arizona in high school, and then she kept it while she was in. Or they like reached back out to her when she was in college to have her 
and not play the part of Barbie, but do the Cher Horowitz, like, when you, I guess toy shows have this thing where, like, you stand as a Barbie and, yes. like, the heads of Toys R Us come through. My aunt to... used to work at toy fairs. Oh, my so God. So she, yeah. Could... Maybe she knew Busy Felton. Who maybe, knows? Maybe. But she had done, like, a few where she was, like, the live model, and then they had her be Cher Horowitz, and she did it for, like, a year and a half. That's incredible. And she read an entire script and character. Wow. And, like, people were obsessed with her, and I just think that that is, one, the most Busy Phillips thing ever. Definitely. And, two, just, like, an amazing synergy of pop culture things. Yes. Yeah. And I just... So wanted... I knew about those Barbie dolls, That's because incredible. I read that in her book last I year. had one, and... My fifth grade birthday party, all we did was watch Clueless and have, like, candy, like, cell phones and, like, beepers and stuff and, like, you know, just say the lines back to each other because also we had no idea, like, the jokes in this movie went totally over our head. Honestly, I got new jokes, I get new jokes on every list, on every watch because Alicia Silverstone speaks so quickly Mm -hmm. and so, like, deadpan. Yes. And is like, I laugh and I miss something and I catch it on the next watch. I have seen this movie a hundred times. I try to rewatch it every year. I think I could literally do it line for line. I I have seen it that much. Um, now I have another personal anecdote. Great. So it's funny that you say that you've always wanted the experience of watching it in theaters because so when I worked at Tribeca, brag. This is a big brag. This is honestly like my biggest flex. Yes. So when I worked at Tribeca, um, we ran a summer, it was called Summer Cinema Series, and we ran like um, an in-theater, it was a two screening rooms and a bar adjacent, and it was for private and sometimes public screenings. And so we ran this summer series, and we did Days and Confused, Lost Boys, um, a few others I can't remember, but we did Clueless. Wet Hot was a big one. We did Clueless. And this was years ago. This was probably like six or seven years ago. So we just like, I say that because um, social media was not what it is now. So we licensed a film. We had been selling tickets and doing all this promotion and we put it in the Village Voice, which R.I.P. I don't think the Village Voice even exists anymore. But I don't even think it exists online, which is really sad. Really sad. I loved the people that worked there; they were so nice. So we had done a, a half page ad for with them, and like was in their calendar and all of that. And my friend Julie, who I met working at Tribeca, um, handled like all incoming calls. So she was sitting kind of like at a front desk, and I was in like this corner around, like away from her. So the phone rings. And Julie, I hear her, and then I hear her go, hold on one second, please. And she comes sprinting into my, like, office nook, and is like, and now she's like, you gotta come here. And so now we're both, I'm like, what's going on? And now we both run into our boss's office, who's an amazing film, pro, like, he's an amazing film programmer, and um, has great taste high end and appreciates the low end and is a true New York not not flustered by celebrities at all mm-hmm. um, and taught me how to keep my kind of cool around that vibe because you must have had celebrities all the time yeah as yeah, part of the film yeah yeah so he we're in his office and Julie is like Amy Heckerling is on the phone oh my god 
And I'm like, our phone? Like, I couldn't believe this. And she's like, yeah, she's, she wants to know if she can come tonight. Oh, my God. And Lauren, my boss, is like, uh, yeah, she, yes, of course. So she's like, okay. So Julie goes and she gets back on the phone. And now we're all looking, like, the whole office is, like, looking at Julie on this phone. She's like, of course, yes, we'd love to see you. Like, doors open, what, you know, then, like, come before. Well, we, do you want a green room? Uh, hold on one second. Yeah, of course that's possible. Of course that's possible. Okay. All right. Okay, yeah, see you then. We're like, what happened? She's like, she wanted to know if it was okay to bring her daughter and her son-in-law. Like, Amy Heckerling was so normal that she need, that she wanted to make sure it was okay that there were extra tickets for t- her daughter and son-in-law. That is incredible. So she came. <sighs> she, I watched the movie in a bar with Amy Heckerling. Oh my god. And then... I got to run the Q&A, <gasps> my first Q&A ever. I've done a number since, but this was my first, was first Q&A ever? Yeah. Oh my God. And I was like crapping my pants. <laughs> I was just like, how can this be happening? Okay, question number one, do people dress up? Yes. Thank people God. People did dress Thank up. you. People did dress up. But it wasn't a brunch. It was like a, it was like a 7.30 screening in the summer. So I think people were like kind of more in the mood. Okay. Here's, here's a photo. I'll post this wow. photo on our Instagram. Amazing. Um, yeah, it was wild. It was like, and I kind of like blacked out, so I can't really remember anything that I asked her about. But she did allude to the fact that she was interested in continuing Clueless. Like she felt like Cher was this amazing character, and it had you know changed so much about her work. And um, now, since then, Clueless has become a musical. Mm-hmm. And it is being remade. They're doing um, a remake. They're doing a remake. I forget the two screenwriters who are attached. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, I think that remakes... So here's the thing. I think that remakes that are made that keep things in the period they were set. Like we talked about how Footloose should not be remade because mm-hmm. it, it captures like a certain 80s thing. Mm-hmm. I do think that Clueless modernized could still be fun. Well, here's something I noticed on a rewatch is that Clueless still feels modern. It's It could, like, I feel like it could be set in 2018. Because I only felt that like that was possible because of the cell phones and the beepers. Because they're this rich family. So now, if we saw it with them, like, doing, like, VR video conferencing, you know what I mean? Like, yes. But it isn't, wasn't it strange? Like, they're carrying Starbucks cups and they're, the, yes. the things that they're wearing because the 90s are now so back in, I, I still, I wanted Cher's wardrobe when I was 10 and saw this movie, and I still want her wardrobe now. And I don't know if that, that speaks to Amy Heckerling's just divine vision and how amazing she is and uh, about and like truly made a timeless movie, or if it's just, oh, everything's old as new again and we're now in this, but... Well, I guess one would probably say that Jane Austen is the timeless. Oh yeah, part okay. Of this. Yes, yes. Um, you know how I feel about. Sorry, literature. so I've I've now pulled up who the the two people helming this remake are. Okay. And it's um, Tracy Oliver who did Girls Trip, and Marquita Robinson who did Netflix's Glow, which people really. Like. Okay, I really like Glow. So yeah, I, so like this feels okay. You know what I mean? It'll. Be, I will, we will see it. We'll we will see. do it. We will cover it for the pod. 
I mean, it hasn't been. This is it, a script is being developed. I'm just saying. I well, don't know if we're going to be doing this pod by the time this comes out in like 2025. Erin, we're going to be doing this pod for the next 25 years. <laughs> if you're aware, we're not going anywhere. I don't know what you have planned that isn't this podcast. Nothing. I have nothing planned. Wow. Anyway, okay. I will save my. I will reserve indignation for when I actually see it. But right now, I'm like, why does this movie have to be remade? Be remade? It's perfect. I agree. The only thing I want to say about Clueless, which is probably a story people have heard before, but Alicia Silverstone was so made for this role, so much that when she was giving her speech, her debate speech about the quote-unquote Haitians and how they deserve to come to America as refugees and equates it to her father's 60th birthday party where people did like not RSVP and they just had to shuffle some tables around and if America could get its ass back into the kitchen, rearrange some things, then we could certainly party with the Hadians. That whole speech where she says Hadians was not in the script. It's obviously as, like written Haitians. as Haitians, but Alicia Silverstone mispronounced it and Amy Heckerling is just behind the camera like, let it go. This is gold. Don't it is stop. Gold. And it's it's so good. It is gold such an amazing movie. I also think that Clueless and the uh, freeway scene, like, uh, maybe the whole Clueless's entire approach to driving has given me, like, was the reason that I didn't get my license until I was an adult. Like, on rewatch, I was like, oh, no wonder I thought driving was dangerous. Terrifying. Yes. Yeah. Same. I mean, yeah. I had other, like, a lot of fear about driving, and I don't know if this film contributed to it, but maybe it did. Because it definitely seemed like... Like, and I also remember being like, well, Cher is so cool. If she doesn't have her license, then she's so cool. So, like, maybe I can get away with this. And, like, my friends will still, like, drive me around. If I'm, and like, you did. And they did. I'm sorry, my friends who had to drive me around so much. Whatever. But uh, I love this movie so much. And rewatching this time, I just, I was just so impressed with the casting. And, like, Murray is so perfect. Even with the braces, I love it. He's so good. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's Brittany Murphy's amazing. Everyone is really good. It's a great, great teen movie. And Agree. Um, let's move on to Slums of Beverly Hills, which you had never seen before. I had never seen it before. What did you think? So here's the thing. I don't really... It does fit in this category as a nice kind of foil to Clueless. Um... And as like a subculture, not even a subculture, but I don't think that this, I think that this is a bit more than a teen movie. Mm -hmm. I think that this is like a family black comedy. Yeah, I would agree. Um, this couldn't like anchor an episode that we're doing. You no, know what I mean? No. It was, I picked it because I thought it was important to have a Natasha Leon film. Agree. Because she is, to me, one a teen icon. We're going to talk about another one. Yes. But I'm a cheerleader, which is so good. Um, but yeah, she's an icon, a teen icon, and in that movie, well, and we'll also talk about American Pie. Yeah, and it just had so much to do with a teenage girl's development. It's in like literal, like you know, puberty development, but also just character development that we don't get to see that much from teen movies. Agree, because there a lot of them are sexist and <laughs> like not until later do we get movies like Lady Bird where you get to have a full woman's perspective on female teenagedom and, mm -hmm. and development so I think I mean I loved this movie like I absolutely loved it I thought it was hilarious in terms of a 
California movie. Mm-hmm. I thought that it was so interesting when she's in the car. I mean, it's influenced in the way that like, um, you know, they're in Be- they're trying to stay in Beverly Hills, and in the way that Rita is dating a actor. But I thought that the scene where she's with Elliot and they're waiting outside for Rita. And he's like, that's Cielo Drive, that's where the Manson girls got, you know, were committed the murder, like Sharon Tate and all of that. And the, I, we're about to enter like a major cultural saturation of like Manson, Manson stuff. stuff. Yeah. Um, like this feels like it's like the fifth wave of it, but um, it's so interesting how certain types of like, like California is a myth making state. Yes. And... The Manson murders are a huge myth, yes. mythical entity of American pop culture and of California, Southern California culture mm-hmm. and counterculture. And, you know, people say that the 60s died like that when day those with murders those murders. Yeah. And so I thought that it was so interesting to have this one character who was so obsessed with Charles Manson's cultural relevance that he not only had one Manson shirt, but at least another spare in his car, had helter-skelter in his glove compartment. War, I mean, this film takes place over the course of a few weeks, only wears that shirt the entire time. Yeah. So... And then has a spare available. Yeah. Um, and that she is so... She's like, ugh! It gives me the creeps! Yeah. And it's like, yes, this is a totally creepy story that we have evangelized not evangelized like evangelized but we're like we just as americans we are obsessed with celebrity we're obsessed with sex and we're obsessed with murder and that combines all three things right and we are lying to ourselves if we say for one second they weren't that we are not obsessed with it in a in a gross way totally and that we try to Put a veil over it, like oh, this is about news. This is about history. This is no. about America. No, like we like the sex, the the crime, the celebrity. Like Sharon Tate being murdered is a horrible thing. A pregnant Sharon Tate. Pregnant Sharon Tate, and all of the other people that were murdered. And yeah, it, it was a horrible thing that happened. But we, as a as a culture, are we just can't stop being obsessed with murder. Like, no, and it's such. It's just felt like such a California thing mm-hmm. to point out. Not. Want, and they do this also when they're driving in the car, like where celebrities live. Yes. Yeah. Um, I feel like growing up in Wisconsin, you have, and I think maybe anywhere that isn't a coast, you do, you have, like you said, you create these myths in your head about like what LA is about, mm-hmm. what New York is about. And especially growing up, and even in high school, and this segues well into Lords of Dogtown, like my friends and I, we were obsessed with California culture. And that's partly because I had friends whose parents had grew, grown up in California or who were born in California and had moved to Wisconsin. Or I also just think it was because of the time that we grew up. Yeah. California was just, and maybe this is true for every generation, California is always a big thing in pop culture, like in teen shows and movies, but we had the OC, we had Laguna Beach, oh, yeah. we had Real Housewives of Orange County, we had Clueless, we had like everything. Even, even like... Um... Saved by the Bell and 90210, which were in syndication by the time that we were in, like, of watching age, like, it was just, yeah. like, it just seemed like those teens were having so much right. more fun. Oh my god, Full House. Like, Do we it, were, right. Mary Kay right. and Ashley Olsen, like, we were obsessed with, like, this California totally. idea. I had, so I have family, very close family that lives in California, 
who I, I, I mean, my cousin Megan, who's my godmother, I've talked about her before. Like, I idolized her growing up. I still do, Megan, don't worry. But, um, <laughs> like, no. I was mean, she the Rita to your Vivian? No, she was not. She would be horrified to hear that. She'd be like, she'd be like, take that back. Um, no, I mean, but she was a, she went to college on the East Coast when I was born. But even still, like, I look at photos of her in high school and like, the California vibe that, that was going on, like, it's amazing, her and her brother, my cousin, like, it's, it's so different than, it's, it's just, and they grew up in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And I, even with Lords of Dogtown, like, thinking, because that was their life, to wake up and go surfing as, like, your thing, Mm -hmm. I mean, Wisconsin, we would go skiing, we would, I mean, we we would, you know, we had outdoor activities that we would do, rollerblading, you know, soccer, baseball, any, like, we would play all these sports, but, like, surfing was such an epic thing, and I mean, I have friends to this day who are now, like, my friend Lisa surfs, but, you know, she grew up in Wisconsin, right. she grew up in Madison, like, she hadn't seen a wave, you know, like, before, you know, and her parents had lived in California, but that idea that she had needed to go to California, like, I knew so many people from my high school that needed to go to California, I wasn't one of those people. I ended up living in California. I needed to go to California. I think there is that need that people yeah. have. And I will say, for as many people as I know that needed to go to California, the same number of people, and sometimes the same people, also had the need to go to New York. So we well, were... Well, wouldn't you know? Well, and here we are. So I definitely... I think that was... In, we were all... And obviously there were people that left Madison and came back or, um, or stayed there because it's a great place to grow up and you know I think about moving back there sometimes but I feel really blessed to have had a group of friends that thought outside the box and thought outside of where we grew up and were willing to take chances and move a lot and yeah see what else is out there and had an interest in living in places like California or New York even though they hadn't little to no anchor there or little to no reason but just mm-hmm. were like I gotta try it out. Like, well, let's see what this coast is about. Yeah, you know, unlike you New Yorkers who are so obsessed with yourselves here. that you talk about us like we're flyover states. Well, it wasn't until I got to college that I heard the phrase "coasty." Oh yeah, that- and the interesting thing um, about the waking up early and going surfing, and we, then we can segue into Lords of Dogtown. Is you know, I grew up in a town that is on the ocean. Yeah. Um, which I think about that, and it like absolutely kills me inside. But I didn't fully recognize how special that was. Yeah. Um, but I was, like, bored of going to the beach. Anyways. Um, but people would get up early and go and surf or go and fish yeah. or go and drive to New Hampshire or Vermont to ski. And so I was, like, kind of aware of, like, that level of teen drive. Like, yeah. I was not the type of Devotion. Was, right, devotion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then when I lived in California, I was friends with people my age, I made friends with people my age, and to hear people be like, oh, I'm leaving this party early to go, and I was in college at this point, but for people to be like, I'm leaving this party early because I'm waking up tomorrow morning to drive to Santa Cruz and go surfing, Mm -hmm. I was like, am I in a TV show? Like, this is magic, and it it, it wasn't, like, I wasn't going to Santa Cruz, I wasn't surfing, But to be in this world, it, and I also was living in a very wealthy town when I was living there, and so to be in these people's, like, parents' mansions, having someone be like, gotta leave so I can go surfing in the morning, like, mm-hmm. 
I too felt that I had walked onto the set of the OC. Yes. But it was NorCal. But it, it was insane. Just to, the way the pop culture has elevated all of this, and then to see it in real life, yeah. like people really do live this way. And I, so we should say, I lived in Palo Alto, California, which is where Stanford University is. And yes. it's like Silicon Valley. That's where Facebook's headquarters is. I lived there for two years from like 2008 to about 2010, 2011, before I went to law school. And Erin, you were there. So I lived with my cousin Megan, who I idolized, and her family um, in Los Altos, which is the town like right next door. Uh, and I lived there every summer in college, so that would have been 2000, no, three summers. I lived there 2000, summer of 2010, 11, and then I lived there for about a year after I graduated college. So there was a summer, maybe two summers, if I'm doing the math correctly, where Aaron and I were in Palo Alto, because you went to Palo Alto a Yeah, lot, of course. At the same time, we're at the same restaurants, mm-hmm. same bars. I wasn't maybe. going out to bars in college, okay. but at, that year after, for sure. So it's very weird to me having met Aaron later, because like not a lot of people have even heard of Palo Alto. Well, maybe now, now because of tech. Facebook, Google, everything. Yeah. But it's just not... And a, even unless you like went San to Francisco, Stanford. But San yeah. Francisco is kind of like the bigger star right. there. Or like, like all of, like, um, what's the, the bit, like Silicon Valley, the TV right. show, that kind of puts some yeah. things on the map. But like Rose and Crown, or like Rudy's, Rudy, or the yeah. patio, like these or are Pizza very, My Heart. Pizza My Heart, oh my god. But I will say that that was a really weird thing, to meet someone who lived in Palo Alto at the same time as me. Like, like it was just very strange to think that Aaron and I met officially like many years later and then be like wow we we also didn't learn this about each other until like a year year and a half into our friendship and we were like wow we were maybe at the same place because there's not a lot of places to go in Palo Alto it's not a large city it's a very good chance we were at the same places at the same time that just like is a mind yeah but my only real ever connection with like surfing culture was going to stay with my friend Claire who lived in the sunset part of San Francisco Mm -hmm. which is a surfing community yeah and going to like a like the fun coffee shops, and the coffee shops not being open yet because people were surfing, and the people that were surfing owned the coffee store, and they didn't start until they were done surfing because the reason they opened a coffee shop is so that they could surf when they want to. Yeah. So having a character like Skip in Lords of Dogtown, I really understood that having a passion for something that doesn't pay the bills, and then doing everything you can. To have a career that allows you to Keep pr- pursue your passion, yeah. whether that's like having a coffee shop on the beach or a surf shop on the beach, and Lords of Dogtown, for me was yeah. Emil Hirsch's. We just looked at his IMDb page uh, quickly, and he's a t- he he really had a teen. He is. Like, I was never super attracted to him. Of course, he was, like, crush-worthy in, in a lot of roles and, like, had this charm to him. But I always thought that he was a really great actor in high school when I was mm-hmm. seeing movies that he was in. And to watch this movie for the first time mm-hmm. as an adult, re- like, you know how we've talked about movies that, like, don't, like, don't live up to the adult type? Yes. Oh, my God. This is the complete opposite. Like, he is... So good in this movie. Um, the scene on the pier where the single tear goes down his face. Like, I'm usually the type of person who rolls my eyes at things like a single tear. And this was like, my tears were rolling. He honestly t- 
took my breath away on a rewatch. Because when I watched it in high school, yeah, it was about, a, you know, I recognized that it was a good film, but I was really just, like, into it because it was about teens and because it was about this cool counterculture and, like, skateboarding and surfing and all that was really, like, sexy to me and just in terms of it was so far away from my reality, like, growing up in Wisconsin. And watching it now, I am so blown away by the acting in this film. Yeah. And especially by Emile Hirsch. He is so quietly angry all the time. Mm-hmm. And it, he just lets... They don't even really talk about how he got into this gang. It just sort of happens. But you Which see, I appreciate it. I do too. You see the progression just on his face. Like you see the reality of his situation on his face. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to say anything. And it's really striking. And I just think it's a really underrated performance. I don't think enough people saw this movie. Um, so I remember that this movie had like a big push. Like I remember press around it. But it was... I, and I, don't, I, I don't think it was well reviewed. Well, it wasn't well reviewed, which shocked me to look on uh, Rotten Tomatoes and see that it was not well reviewed. Because I thought it was great. Um... But I think that the problem with this movie is when it was marketed was that it was, oh, here's a Heath Ledger movie where Heath Ledger isn't being Heath Ledger. And this was like the first movie that kind of like moved him away from like The Patriot and 10 Mm -hmm. Things I Hate About You. And it was like the first movie that we understood like the depths of Heath Ledger's acting abilities and how he wasn't just a pretty face Mm -hmm. because he plays such a tragic Um, character and the sadness that he feels when these boys leave him because he can't he can't it there's a scene in which they're talking about how they they need to cut the boys in on skips profits and all of his kind of cronies are like you gotta cut them in and he's like cut them in on what right like i'm not like and he doesn't say anything else and it's like the reality is, is that Skip was not a businessman or an agent. Right, because he created a job that he could leave at any time to go surfing. Right. And that is not ever going to be a viable business unless you have people willing to watch your shop. But everyone that works for you are surfers right. that also <laughs> want to leave and go surfing. Right. And then he creates this the skate team. Truly, it felt out of a, like, I mean, boastful... Let's stick it to the man because yeah. when they get to the first surf com- um, skate competition, it's like people in knee socks and sweatbands yeah. doing like weird roller skate moves on skateboards, like right. to songs. And the type of skating that these guys do hasn't been hasn't moved to the competition circuit yet because they invented it. Right. So people, it takes them doing basically like advertising their own type of skating and getting like a spread in skateboard magazine doing these pool like you know empty pool skating um routines that changes the format of the skating competition so then they can start showing off when they first show up it's like everyone thinks that they're just a band of rebellious teens right which they they are are, but they're um they're not like, they don't want to, they're very concerned about, I mean, they're not concerned about their bodies in a way that they're taking great care of themselves, but they have boundaries and limits, you know what I mean? Like, they don't want to get injured because they don't want to lose this, they don't want to get into fights because they don't want to get injured. Like, yeah. so, 
I thought that that was really interesting. And then they start to have their own, because as Blythe described in her description of the movie, like, they all kind of have parental problems. And so once they realize that they can create a name for themselves and make real money, make real money, like, you see how hard that is for, we haven't really dealt with that as teens. Not, there's not that much to delve into because, like, um, with, like, teen, I guess, like, when we talk about Princess Diaries, we'll talk about, like, teen transformation and stuff like that. But this is, like, I think because it's based on a true story, like, Mm -hmm. to see these teens go from, um, True poverty, true to poverty, overnight celebrity. Yeah, it's and that I mean maybe it wasn't quite overnight, but that's the way the film you know really yeah. speeds it up to make yeah. you feel like it happened overnight. Like not, Stacey Peralta is on like an episode of Charlie's Angels. I love, and that isn't real. That happened. Like I loved the tie-ins to seventies culture. Mm-hmm. I thought that those were so well done. Yeah, um, something that we haven't explicitly said about this episode yet is that all of the directors are females which is so cool so um excuse me i just sneezed so katherine hartwick is the director of lords of dogtown and she also directed 13 which if you're not familiar with 13 also stars nikki reed who's in lords of dogtown and evan rachel wood it's a horrifying movie it's a very good movie but it's a horrifying movie that will make you never want to have adolescent daughters and as the title suggests it's about a 13 year old girl yeah yes and so when that movie came out that kind of like um there was like a shock and awe element to it but the way that it's filmed she kind of has like a steven soderbergh vibe to her where it's this very like gritty Mm -hmm. handheld camera um really natural performances and so with myth making in the seventies, I, I said to Blythe while I was watching this movie, I said I really think like that Joan Didion would love this movie, and I love to imagine Joan Didion watching this movie. Who, if you're not familiar with Joan Didion, I don't want to patronize with people by introducing June, Joan Didion this way, but if you're not familiar with her, she's a um, a writer who writes nonfiction. She's written many screenplays. She wrote many screenplays in the seventies. Um, she's written a lot of memoirs in her later years. She's a very, very iconic, mythical figure herself. And her writing is incredible. Um, her writing is probably part of why I moved to California, to be a total cliche. Sure. Like, it built that whole life up for mm-hmm. me. Um, but she, ta- she wrote a ton of... Um, she was like a magazine and newspaper writer and then compiled all of her essays and pieces into a number of books and the first one two Slash and Torch Bethlehem and the White Album are all about countercultures Mm -hmm. and I just feel like this movie takes one essay and explodes it you know what I mean totally and when Aaron texted me that I it was like my head exploded because I had never made that connection before and it's so spot on this is it does re like even though it's not Joan Didion and it's based on a real life and it's based right. on a documentary, it does feel like she could have just as easily written about these guys and and you you know what I mean like yeah and I think the thing is is that um, a lot of a lot with in a lot of screenplays and a lot of films and there's the phrase 
um, show, Don't Tell. Yeah. And in a lot of writing, that's this the same thing. So with Joan Didion, she describes things with so few words in such a concise mm-hmm. way. You feel like you're there, and she really, like, evokes a sense of place and, you know, you know what it smells like and feels like to be somewhere. And this movie does that yeah. in such... Um, a delicate way like the scene where and and it is mostly because of Emil Hirsch to bring it back to what you said like his story with his mom who is a nut mm-hmm. a, like a total bad mom right but like you could see her she could have just as easily bounced from like a California cult into like a hippie community oh yeah into like I mean you can see on her face that she's had a journey that has brought her to yeah. this quote-unquote ghetto by the sea with a raising being a single mom with this kid and like they don't have to explain anything about her background you already know who this woman is based on how they've dressed her based on her acting based on how she talks based on like the fish sticks in the freezer it's you know she works at this like factory Uh yeah it's the film does a really really good job of giving you the bare essentials of what the, these kids background and then just like it just grows through their performances yeah, yeah. Really I loved good. this movie I so absolutely loved it. it I loved it if it uh, yeah I loved it good all right let's move on to our awards are we oh do we think that these are teen, good teen movies <sighs> I will say Slums of Beverly Hills is not a good teen movie it's a good teen performance oh yeah and an important teen performance mm-hmm. but if I'm thinking about like I want to have a movie night with my girls and I'm going to get popcorn and we're going to watch a fun teen movie with a hunk it's not oh, going to no, be something right. really there's is. no hunk although Rory what's his name what's the guy's name who plays him I oh, it's not Rory Co- Cochran and- but I will say I watched it with my boyfriend Billy and I just put it on like he was watching something else and I just put it on in the background and he, I watched his body movement turn from whatever, I think he was watching basketball, from whatever he was watching and I watched him physically turn his body towards my laptop to begin watching the film and then totally ignoring what was on our main TV and he was riveted and he just like, he was like, now I'm watching this. This is now what I'm watching. It, I, it took like five minutes for that to happen. I think that Alan Arca and Natasha Leon. Natasha Leon are the reason. Yes. They, yeah. So while I don't think it's a good quote unquote teen movie, I think everyone should watch it because it is so funny. It is so good. And I wish that it just had more of a following because it is, I quote it a lot and I people don't even realize that I'm quoting it. I'm going to start saying... Act decent, like people, <laughs> and everywhere we go. It's it's just so wonderful, and um, the rest I think obviously clueless, Titan teen movie. Yeah, maybe my favorite teen movie of all time. Interesting. I think on a rewatch, I was like, this is note for note perfect. I think, in, in the, with the exception of the stepbrother stuff. Yeah. But in terms of pacing, movie making. Music. Do you think that there was a way to do this? Obviously, Emma, they're not related, or step-siblings. So do you think that, like, in the remake, they will continue the step-siblings thing, or is it going to be like, this is our neighbor? I think there's a way to do it where, no, Josh doesn't have to be. I think, but honestly, 
But you also can't make him appear either. Mm, he has to be older. Yeah. But that's why I feel like maybe like your neighbor. Your neighbor is good because you know I was thinking oh maybe he could be like a, a student teacher at school or no, something no. but that would be so inappropriate in so, <laughs> so many levels. So yeah, I mean, or maybe and then like, your neighbor can it be, can't be a coworker because no. Cher doesn't work. Cher doesn't so, work. Um, I mean, <laughs> my fa- one of my favorite quotes is when um, she's do- she's in the house and Josh takes note and it's like, "Who's watching the Galleria?" <laughs> Um, yeah, I think you could do it with, like, a neighbor who, like, had gone to college. Or, and, like, came back and was interested in, like, law. Yeah, or her, yeah, exactly. And her father's a lawyer. Maybe he could be, like, a, an intern. It's his first year of college, and he's interning at the law firm because his dad got a new job or something. Yeah. And he ends up doing work at Which is a family house. friend. Let's just totally. go with a, a family, family friend. friend. Doesn't have to be the stepbrother. I agree. Maybe they, they should make note of that. So, other... Lords of Dogtown being a good teen movie, yeah, yeah. If, if any, I mean, what was frustrating for me on a rewatch, even though these guys have like very terrible upbringings in a lot of ways and like have to struggle so much, it really captured the fun of being a teenage boy. And I was just like watching it, I was so jealous mm-hmm. of teenage boys, especially having to watch Slums of Beverly Hills and parts of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where it was like. Being a teenage girl is just stressful. Yeah. Like, there are so many things that happened to the teenage girls for this week's pod that were, that sucked. I agree. I think, I think that we're now in an era where it's like a 50-50 chance. I talked about this last week when we were talking about uh, Julia Stiles being kind of bland. Mm-hmm. Because, like, now we have females who anchor movies with, like, their quirkiness. And I think, like... We're really excited for Booksmart because of that. Or, like, Blockers was, like, big because of that. But I also think that you had people like Emma Stone and Easy A that kind of, like... Like, I think the tide really started to shift, like, around... And honestly, I know that we don't want to credit him for much, but, like... Well, I should take that back. I think that Judd Apatow ushered in a new era of, like, teen agency, and he gave that to boys in a self-deprecating way and to girls in a like I have two teen daughters and they're nuts so like have at it kind of a yes. way. Yes. I, I will give him some credit yeah. for that. That's why I, I, I take yeah. back that we don't want to give And Judd Apatow is notably a an excellent collaborator with female producers, writers, totally. like he is and like you said he has teenage daughters. I think he's very much interested in telling both stories, both male and female, I think he just, he's interested in telling a human story. Mm-hmm. And he has gotten some flack for being just, like, another version of potty humor for, you know, the aughts or whatever. But, but I think what? he's I think a deeper, more emotional person than that, yeah. as you can see in Freaks and Geeks. As you can Ugh. see in... Maybe Freaks and Geeks was the tipping scale. Really, like... I think that, um, you know, like, the period jokes... Like, peer, like menstrual jokes yes, yes. in uh, Slums of Beverly Hills is funny. And it plays for a laugh and it gets a laugh because yeah. you have Jessica Walters and Natasha Leone in a bathroom together. Like, yeah. that's a great scene. Yeah. But I also think that, like, um, I don't know, like, women have hangovers and throw up and get too drunk at parties and do all of these gross things that boys do for humor as well and we yeah. just have like other shit to burden and I yeah. and I 
I'm interested in stories that show both sides. Agreed. And, I mean, Lords of Dogtown, I think it they were remiss in not making Peggy Oakey a bigger character. Totally. That would have been really interesting if you gave us those three guys and you gave us her arc and her story because she was the person on a rewatch that I was most interested in learning about. They literally just, like, put her at the end of the bench. Yes. Yeah. There she's the first one to get a shirt to be on the Zephyr skate team, and that's it. And you see her skating, and, like, we're going to do Skate Kitchen, and we're going to do other, like, mm-hmm. girl power movies, but it, I hate that it has to be one or the other. I know. I also hate that the, if we think that the representation of teen women is low, the representation of Asian American teen women is exceptionally lower based on one, the Peggy Oki, am I saying her last name right? Mm-hmm. Um, in Lords of Dogtown, and then in Clueless, they have a friend who doesn't even get a name, yeah. who's like in their crew. Yeah. Um, yeah, that bothers me. Yeah. But and, I mean. And in terms of Fast Times Original High, I kind of think you can skip it. Um, yeah, I feel like if at this point you haven't seen it, like what you need to know is Sean Penn has always taken himself very seriously. Um, but I will do one last fun tie in is that Sean Penn was the narrator for the documentary Dogtown the Z-Boys. That's a great one. Actually, a tie into California Teens and Sean Penn. My mom one time saw Sean Penn in the San Francisco airport getting a shoe shine. Wow. My mom was also getting a shoe shine, which cracks me up because I'm like... That's <laughs> hilarious. What was your mom wearing that she needed her shoe shine? My mom shine? was a big fan of like boots. Oh, like sexy leather boots? No, they weren't sexy. They always had a very... My mom was, was a tall woman. She was mm. like almost 5'10". Oh, so dang. Had, yeah, she was tall. I want to be 5'10", like Cindy Crawford. <laughs> I love that line. Um, she always had like a sensible, like lift, not a heel. Mm. Um, but she always had like really nice leather boots and she oh. was getting a shoe shine and she looked over and Sean Penn was very short in her words and was also getting a shoe shine and was reading the New York Times. Celebrity Heights will forever fascinate me, especially me male Celebrity Heights. There is like a, a truth-seeking website that reveals <laughs> the truth of Celebrity Heights, and it's so funny. I highly recommend you check it out. They'll like say, like, Tom Cruise listed as 5'9", actual height, 5'3". By the way, he wears lips, so oh, he can look... Everyone- so, we have some superlatives to give out today. We So, we don't have any um, Stalker Channing or Peter Fascinelli awards. I will say Stacey Adams was 28 when they filmed Clueless. Stacey Adams. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stacey Dash. I was like, who's oh, Stacey God. Adams? <laughs> Stacey, Stacey Dash, Dash well, was 28. I was, I was hoping to get through the episode without talking about Stacey Dash. I know. Dash. I didn't want to bring it up either. Okay. We have some superlatives. Yes. We are going to do, for this episode, best hair, cutest couple, worst driver, and Uh worst adult influence. Yeah. Erin, who do you have for best hair? I had Viv. Okay, I had Viv or Stacey. Oh, Stacey Boy, Stacey in Lords of Action. Yeah, Yeah. Stacey Peralta, yeah. They have the best hair. I will give a shout out to Stacey Stacey Peralta in Lords of Action has like Glowing blonde hair, like like classic California. Blonde. I've been kissed by the sun. Yeah, straight toe head. Definition of a toe head. Is that a derogatory term? Um, sorry, if it is. <laughs> I think it is, but it's about the Danish, so no one cares. No. Those Danes are fine. Um, I'll also give a shout out to Alicia Silverstone's the way that they style her hair. Yes, it is 
I was mesmerized by it on rewatch, and I would like to know, like, if someone could do a YouTube beauty video of everything they did, like, did she use Pantene? Like, what is going on in that hair? It is perfect. Every strand falls perfectly, but it's, like, full, and it moves. Like, it's amazing. The hair. scene where she's watching Ren and Stimpy and, like, putting her hair up and, like, playing with her hair, it's, it is porn to me. For hair. It's hair porn. Yeah. It's so, like, sexy, but also, like, not, it's, it's non-sexual, and it's very sexy. It is just, she has great hair. Great hair. Yeah. Thick, gorgeous, the perfect blonde. I would love Lucy great. Silverstone's hair. Cutest couple? So, I gave the cutest couple to Mike, to Rat, and Stacy yeah. Because the movie ends... With them giving romance a shot, but yeah. having not gone all the way. They are very cute. I like... Stacy deserves a good guy, and he's obviously a very good guy. Yeah. Um, when she asks him, she's like, I bet you can sneak into so many movies working at the movie theater. And he's like, yeah. And you can see over his face that he would never, never do that. Ever. A little bit of a square, but... Yeah. I had Dion and Murray. Oh, good one. I mean... I watched the Clueless TV show because they were still mm-hmm. in it. Mo- actually, like, most of the cast... They just recast Alicia Silverstone. Yeah. I mean, and Alton. Yeah. I mean, like, Brittany Murphy wasn't in it. Oh, yeah. But, but you the had... Thai character, they kind of... No, but they had Amber was the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, most importantly, Dion and Murray were both in it. And, like, it was cute. It was cute. I watched that show, too. That was yeah. a big uh, WB show. Who is your worst driver? I mean, Cher. I had Charlie Jefferson's little brother in Spicoli. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they total his car. They And do. then blame it on a different school. Yeah. Okay. Real bad moment. That's fair. But Cher is an iconically bad driver. Yeah. Because of how cavalier she is. Yes. And the so iconic... I failed? And the iconic line, do you want to practice parallel parking? Why? Everywhere you go has ballet. Yeah. Iconic line. <laughs> Iconic line. Iconic California teen line. Because I didn't even know what valet parking was when I watched that movie. That is the that is the teen that grew up in LA. Like as a I mean, not that I was doing a lot of driving anyway, but like the idea of valet parking was just not a thing. So foreign. (laughs) Who was your worst adult influence? So I think that Rita. I had Rita too. So we had tried to decide between like, the big three, I might have mentioned this already, are Rita from Thumbs Beverly Hills. Hills, Skip from Lords of Dogtown, and Josh from um, Clueless. Okay. Yeah, Rita is really bad. Really, really bad. She does some okay things. Like, she definitely makes uh, Viv more comfortable in her body and mm-hmm. with her sexuality mm-hmm. and, like, accepting the fact that she's a woman. There's a scene of Natasha Leone and Marissa Tomei dancing with a vibrator. That's that the funniest thing. so funny and so heartwarming and hilarious and weird and just like, again, I know I've already said it 20 times this podcast. If you have not seen Slums of Beverly Hills, it's great. please watch it. It's so good. But Rita is terrible. She is so, she, yeah, she's terrible influence. She is. Especially because Vivian is so smart and like, But also is so impressionable. She's literally needs a woman's guidance, and Rita is what she has, and it's Rita is a disaster. Yeah, and Rita also leans on Viv for adult lessons. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's weird. It's a mess. It's a mess. Who's your prom king? 
I gave it to Stacy. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Stacy's very... I think he would, like, bashfully accept, yeah. but I think that he'd be really thrilled by it. He's a wonderful leader in the film. He's a really good guy. That actor really hasn't done much. No, since. and I was thinking about that. Like, John Robinson, he just sort of played that and went away, so I don't yeah. know. Maybe, like, Stacy, he was too busy, you know, going to school and, like, trying to do right. And Maybe. Didn't, didn't follow his acting career. I don't know. Um, I have Murray as my prom king. I oh, just think good he's one. obviously so well liked in the school. Yeah. And probably if I think he was prom I, king in an episode of Clueless, the the TV show. I believe that I also believe that Donald Faison was prom king in real life. One hundred percent. I would I would put money on that. Do you know that. who he's married to? No. Um of course I I don't even need to ask. You watched Newlyweds with Jessica and Nick. Jessica yes, and of course. Nick. Yes, yes, Do you remember yes. her best friend, Casey? Shut up. They're married. And Are they you have serious? like three, two or three beautiful children together. I feel like I did know that. And then it's. They've been married for a long time. That's too. amazing. Like at least 10 years ago. Did I you watch Scrubs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I loved yeah. it. He was so good. He was great. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, my prom queen is Cher. My prom queen is also Cher. Hello. Born prom queen. Yeah. Tr- truly. Do you have a fuck, marry, kill for me? I do. Um, all Dogtown Boys. Oh my god. Is that what you gave to me? Yes. <laughs> I was wondering when this was down to happen. Oh no! So Jay, Tony, and Stacy. I gave you the exact same. Okay. Um, as their characters. As their characters. And let's, we will stick to the fictional universe, because I've seen the documentaries. So yeah, I know we're sticking to the fictional like, universe. Fictional universe. Um, I would... Kill Tony. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I would sleep with Jay and I would marry Stacy. Interesting. Yeah. What do you have? I would probably also marry Stacy. Mm-hmm. Oh, damn. I don't know. I think I would definitely sleep with Tony. Definitely Ooh, Tony. okay. Yeah. yeah. Even though he like hooks up in the same room as other people, but... We'll ignore that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I would probably marry Stacy. If Jay got his life together, maybe I would marry Jay. Because I think that... I don't think that Stacy's particularly, like... Um, I think that he's a generally kind person, but I don't think that he's particularly, like, self-aware. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I'd have to do a lot of explaining to Stacy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Yeah. So maybe Jay. I mean, I, I thought about marrying Jay because... I. I love an emo boy, and he's mm. so emo. I don't love an emo boy, oh. and that's why I I hesitate, but... I do. Billy Gaffney, noted emo boy. <laughs> do you want me to edit that out? No, I don't care. <laughs> he doesn't listen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he's also not emo. Not no, not at all. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, he's not emo at all. That's why it's funny that I'm... Oh, yeah. Um, did you have any, like, most true-to-life moments, or least true-to-life moments? I will say, Natasha Leone's just, like, general discomfort with having breasts was very true-to-life for mm-hmm. me. I'm still not very comfortable with my breasts as a 33-year-old woman. Interesting. I just think there's just so... I play a lot of sports, and you I've do. always gotten in my way, and they're always kind of a burden, and I know, like... I, I mean, I love my body. I'm not going to be down about my no, body. No, It's our podcast. I love the way that a flat chest works with clothing. Mm. 
I'm just very jealous of that silhouette. I'm a much more curvaceous, gotta just have a more fuller figure is the is the term. And I'm just like, I just watched some women wear a sundress with like a backless sundress, no bra, living their life. I'm just so jealous. I want that so bad. And I really felt Natasha Leon's pain. Even though I found out she was wearing fake boobs the whole time. But. Yeah. I hear that. I don't have big boobs, so I've always wanted bigger boobs. Right. I think that's it. Like, if you have curly hair, you wish you had straight hair yeah. and vice versa. Like, it's just... But you have no idea how... I guess neither of us understand. The grass is always greener. The, boob, always the boobs greener, are always bigger. Especially as a teenager. Yeah, because, for sure. And especially as a teenager, because like, you never know how it'll turn out. You're like, maybe one day I'll wake up and my boobs will be bigger. Right. Yeah. Maybe and I'll wake up and I'll have grown a foot. Like, yes. You're always kind of waiting for it to shake out so that you can accept it. It's like, yeah. I'll accept it when I know what it is. Yes. Or you're like, my body will change. Like, I will fill out or I will, right. like, and it's I true. will lose my baby fat or whatever. And then, like, you just don't, and you're like, oh, I really have to just live with this. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. My least true-to-life teen moment, mm-hmm. um, just Cher Horowitz's entire existence. Yeah, I think uh, Clueless is a not even a little bit relatable movie. But I, I do appreciate that she's a good friend. and a She's good, a good person. She's a good person. And she prides herself on being a kind person. Mm-hmm. A, a and a sensitive and an attuned person to the needs of others. Did you have a true to life? Um, I thought that the way that Mike asked Stacy out was definitely the most true to life. Yeah. I thought that that was like, can I get your number so I can ask you out sometime? Like, oh oh my God. So cute. I love that. So cute. Um, and I did not grow up in poverty, but in Lords of Dogtown, when he goes to visit his mom at work and she's like, there's fish sticks in the oven, in the freezer. Like, I did not have that reality of fish sticks, but I definitely had the reality of, like, there's a frozen pizza in the freezer. Yeah. You'll be fine. Like, yeah. I thought, I have thought of you. <coughs> it's just this nasty piece of frozen food that you'll have to douse in condiments. Same. I... Fend um, for yourself. Fend for yourself was a huge thing in my house, too. Like, my mom did not subscribe to the idea that she would have a meal on the table at dinner every night, Mm -hmm. she was like, you are an adult. Pack your own lunch. Make your own dinner. I was like nine, but she still (laughs) was very much espousing that. And my mom, well, that's the thing, is she wasn't like a neglectful person or a, and she was even like, I really liked her cooking, but she was just kind of like, this is not what I am. This is not my identity. I am not your slave. I am not your cook. So interesting because you and I both, as adults, are very interested in cooking and cooking for people that we love. But I think that's because I learned it first as a life skill and then ah. was like, if I'm going to be cooking my own meals, I better make something that I want to eat. And I and that from that, I got really into cooking shows. I got really into Martha Stewart and Julia Child. I'm like a huge Martha Stewart fan. Because I was like, shoot, I really want this that I've had at a restaurant and I don't know how to make it. And I would ask my mom to like buy me these things and she'd be like, yeah, like make whatever you want. Just like clean up after yourself. And not to put my boyfriend on blast, but I was sick recently and asked him to like just make me Campbell's chicken noodle soup. And he didn't add the can of water that you're supposed to add. Oh no. 
which was like just showed me like how different I knew how to make open make my my Campbell's soup that was like my thing that I made myself for dinner like since I was in second grade and I was like oh baby you have to add a kettle he's like oh I didn't know that I've never made this before and I was like okay so I totally feel you on that. The, the fish sticks. I definitely made fish well, sticks before. And the before. thing is, is my mom was actually, my mom loved family dinners, but our family definitely had a rough patch and my parents got divorced and like no one wanted to sit at the same table with anyone. And uh, like, thank God. And so when she, w- I became introduced to the concept of like, I have my own life and I'm going to things. And you can just eat these frozen chicken fingers. And I would be like, what? Yeah. Leftovers? Yeah. What is that? Yeah. And then I, like, learned. And it was great. I mean, I still am nostalgic for this brand of chicken fingers. Like, I don't think they even exist anymore. (laughs) And they were, like, kind of soggy. And they were fucking delicious. And I would, like, eat those and watch the WB Friday Nights. And it was, like, living. Yeah. And now, at 29 years old, living in... Arguably the most exciting city in the world. Guess what I like to do on a Friday night? Eat shitty takeout and watch TV. And I feel like I am living. I might have a dirty martini while I'm doing it. (laughs) L-I-V-I-N. Was there any uh, great expressions of the get out of my room award? Angsty teens? You know, there again, like, these performances in terms of, like, the dramatic ones were so much more quiet. Mm-hmm. They weren't outwardly yelling from the top of the stairs, you don't understand me. They were just so much quieter. I will say maybe Jay, Emil Hirsch. Yeah, he definitely just, He had um, a lot of scenes where he, he was just exuding that teen angst, but there was no like speech or anything. Yeah, I think the skating was a good outlet mm-hmm. for him and the shaved head and the gang. <laughs> We're good outlets. Yeah, probably. <laughs> good extracurricular activities. Okay, so we've already talked about the Clueless remake. Do we think any of these movies will be remade? Uh, no, I don't. I don't see a need for it. Um, just see them. Just see Slums of the Early Hills. Yeah. See Lords of Dogtown. And then tell us what you think about them. And if you think they suck, I'd like to know why. I would like to know what anyone's problem with <laughs> Clueless or Slums of Beverly Hills is. I just assume every one of our listeners have seen Clueless. I, how, have you, how could you have missed that movie? I'm going to ask Matt tonight if he's seen Clueless. Well, that's a good question. I'm sure Billy has seen it. It feels like just you. It feels like it feels like people saying that they haven't seen like I'm trying Forrest Gump. Right. Like it feels that iconic to our generation's media diet growing up yeah like like i can't imagine that someone hasn't seen clueless i can't i can't wait to rewatch it <laughs> again again okay, i'm already like excited for the next this time next year when i have my Aww. annual clueless rewatch because it's just so funny uh what do we think the best teen movie was clueless for clueless. me clueless yeah i think that the quality of clueless that makes it the best is it has this um, fairy tale fantasy level to it mm-hmm. that when you're a teen, that's what makes it so appealing. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, Lords of Dogtown, the angst that you feel looking back on teenage life, like, is well captured there. But yeah, Clueless was just the ultimate 
I can, like, the, um, the computer, like, in the beginning of the movie. Yes. Where she's looking for her outfit. Like, yes. everyone, every woman I know thinks about that once a month. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's the coolest thing I will ever see. And they still haven't made that. No. It's still not something it's that not. we can have. And that's another thing, like, even though the technology is, looks outdated or whatever, again, that, I rewatching it, I was like, oh, I could see Rihanna picking out her clothes this way. Like, it didn't feel totally. dated. It felt so modern. There were just so many parts of this film that felt very modern. I'm my like, favorite thing? Very impressed. My favorite thing about Clueless, or my favorite thing about Clueless on rewatch, I kind of had forgotten how it started. Like, well, I remember that it started with them with, like, lots of, similar to Fast Times at Ridgemont High, like, quick cuts of teens doing different things, and yeah. then Cher narrates as she does throughout the whole film, and she's like, I'm sure you're thinking this is a Nox, what is this, a Noxzema commercial? I laughed so, so hard. hard. She's like, nope, this is just my life. Yeah. You're probably thinking, seriously, is this a Noxzema commercial or what? But actually, I have a way normal life for a teenage girl. Yeah. So good. So good. So good. Uh, so next week, we're talking, we don't know when we'll be recording or releasing, we're going to figure that out. We're going to figure that out, but we do have an episode coming next week. Sorry we've been off the schedule a little bit. Next week is going to be about best friends. Really excited, because Aaron and I are best friends, and we can't wait to talk about best can't friends. Can't wait to talk about best friends. Cool. Bye for now. Bye.